Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks on the move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 205. Well, just ahead, Zscaler. They told us the quarter would stink. Then they say it won't. And Twilio, after reporting a lousy quarter, tells us how companies are adopting AI and tossing out their old tech stack. And a big casino-focused REIT, Vici Properties, tells us what's going on with the economy, their customers, and emerging technology to make them better than anyone. A fantastically well-performing REIT UG Properties CEO Edward Petoniak joins us, but first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever with ERA. Customize your company watch list and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A.com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, and TuneIn. But hit the subscribe button to make sure to catch every show. All right, I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We explain the business stories behind stocks on the move. And sometimes, Isaac, the business is doing well. The stocks are not. Isaac Webster joining me, our executive producer. Isaac, I tell you about my thrilling weekend? You have not. Well, I don't want to get too deep into it. But I did, in fact, go to see Taylor Swift this weekend with my teenage daughters in Nashville. And it was epic. I saw the pictures. I'm going to stop using the it's, word epic. It looked epic. It was insane. Why? I love the word epic. Well, I know, but it's overused. I mean, this thing was, you know, well, among others, it was long. I was it was, I was there for, uh, geez, we arrived in the, at the stadium, the Nissan Stadium, uh, at about 4.35 o'clock and didn't leave till almost 2 in the morning. There was a huge lightning. What? Yeah. There was a lightning and rainstorm that came through, severe weather, they, um, shortly after we got there and my daughter's in their outfits, they had special outfits and cowboy boots and hats and special bracelets with this names of Taylor Swift songs and all this stuff. They, uh, very cute, adorable. They were, uh, just getting set up and taking all the pictures for their Instagram or some of the pictures for their Instagram. When I overheard a security guard saying that there were severe weather conditions and they were going to actually put, pull everyone out of the stadium which they did, about 70,000 people crowded into the kind of catacombs and the concession areas uh, underneath the stadium, hiding from the severe right. weather of lightning storms, huge wind uh, uh, gusts, kind of the entire state of Tennessee just pelted with this serious weather. We were, uh, they, we, we were pulled downstairs into the basement right before five o'clock and didn't, you know, weren't allowed to go back to our seats until almost 10 o'clock at night. Oh my God. Did people leave? I'm a, no, they wouldn't let you go outside because of this weather. I mean, it was really, really extreme weather. Lightning strikes all around. Uh, people were elbow to elbow in this space standing. I have to say that if it was men, if this was like a Guns N' Roses show or like a hip hop show, 
we would have been at each other's throats. Uh, but in fact, it was these, it was all these young women and they were just so stoked, worried, of course, about maybe not being able to see the show, but they started singing Taylor Swift songs by the thousands of people with all the lyrics and just having a blast. It was, it was just adorable. This is really great vibe of people. The deadheads probably wouldn't have rioted. That's incredible. But, um, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, we waited and waited and waited. And uh, suddenly we, we were allowed to go back to our seats almost 10 o'clock. Uh, the rain was still kind of lightly falling and occasionally picked up. Taylor Swift takes the stage, does 45 tunes, performs that for is... almost four hours. Uh, See, that is epic. That's epic. Uh, the stage show was you gotta insane. Say epic. There are dancers and costume changes. I've never seen anything like it. Uh, and then the rain came and she performed in the rain. She played the guitar in the rain. She would raise her hands in the air and lightning would strike as there were pyrotechnics going off on the stage. The lightning from God and wow. above the pyrotechnics from the fine folks at the Taylor Swift tour. Uh, it was, it was, it was quite the, uh, quite the scene. Wow. So you, uh, you would go again. I had a great time is what I'm saying. Uh, it's hard. It would be hard to recreate that experience. It was exhausting, uh, but uh, my daughters were so. It sounds exhausting. My daughters were singing the lyrics of every song to each other, and this isn't the information our business listeners want to listen to. But fascinating time um, and a huge money event. My back of the envelope uh, measurements figure out that, that Taylor Swift probably took in well over fifty million dollars, or at least the top line revenue for this event over the three days was well over 50 million uh, just just you know between the concessions and and the merch and the very expensive tickets um, uh, big spending in Nashville this weekend well it's not to belabor this but I did see a recent an article yesterday her three-day stint in Houston has um, is record-breaking hotel capacity for the city Nashville saw the just same. three days in Houston yeah yeah Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Speaking of Taylor Swift, let's look at Zscaler. <laughs> oh, Zscaler has nothing to do with Taylor Swift, actually. They don't. Um, they might want to, though. Who knows? Uh, Zscaler trades under ZS. Friend of the show. We love having Zscaler on. Uh, ZS shares have jumped 33% in the past five days. A complete vertical rise if you're looking at the chart. But if you're looking at a 12-month chart, ZS... Shares are still lower by 21%. What's going on with Zscaler? Well, this company's hotter than Taylor Swift, or at least in the last week it has been. Um, a $16 billion cloud security company. Really simple description of what the company does. What do they do? Cloud security. That's it. Not confusing, unlike the stock we're going to talk about after this. But uh, their preliminary guidance they just announced uh, between their quarterly reports was fantastic, and that's why the stock is surging. They expect third quarter revenues to be $417 million. That's way up from the 497 that they had predicted uh, just a few weeks ago. Uh, the company also says um, their bookings will be up about 38%. The business looked like it was slowing down when they reported results back on March 2nd, but now things have really picked up. So I thought it'd be interesting to look back at what breadcrumbs, what, what clues they gave us back when they reported when Jay Chowdhury, the CEO, uh, as you mentioned, friend of the Drill Down podcast, uh, Jay Chowdhury back in March, said that if you looked at the quarter, things weren't great, but they were interesting. The big deals were slow, but they were still coming. If you look at that quarter, we found that our upsell was quite strong. Customers loyal to us, they like our solution, upselling becomes easier for us. In terms of challenging, new logos with large deals were more challenging as there was additional scrutiny and additional approvals needed. 
The other thing that worked well was the customers liked the fact that we are able to do consolidation of lots of point products, the clean architecture, and give them strong ROI. That thing has worked well for us. In terms of competitive positioning, we haven't really seen any change. In fact, I would say that on the higher end of the market, we actually feel like we are stronger than even before because we have established that we actually have the right architecture, right solution with thousands of customers, well deployed and very happy customers. Well, very happy customers, very happy shareholders for this company too, uh, because the business is picking up um, again and has rebounded really fast. And I think that's super interesting, Isaac, when we look at kind of the broader macroeconomic things, we wonder about the, the failure of banks and, and how that's affected big corporate purchasing. And at least as far as Zscaler goes, not much. Corey, what is your next drill down? We're going to look at Twilio, a, a neighbor of ours. Uh, they've yet to appear on the Drill Down yeah. podcast, but the company's right around the corner uh, from our uh, ferry building headquarters here in San Francisco. Well, we might be about to find out why they haven't joined us yet. Twilio trades under TWLO. Shares have dropped 4.5% over the past five trading sessions. And if you're looking at a chart, it's a straight drop down. And TWLO, Twilio shares have fallen 51% over the past year. Yeah, the stock's gotten rocked. Uh, the company's gotten rocked. They have uh, big layoffs over there. Um, uh, a one-time giant employer, not giant, but one-time uh, active uh, hirer, hiree, hirer in the uh, uh, San Francisco Bay Area, pulling back, laying off employees. The business is is still growing. Revenues were up 15% to $1 billion in the first quarter. Still losing money, quarter of a million dollar loss, just a quarter of a billion dollar loss, I should say, 264 million loss in the quarter. Um, and this is, as I mentioned, all these layoffs. And this wasn't what the company, even after lowering expectations, uh, this was even worse. Now, what does Twilio do? I mentioned the last company, Zscaler, is simple, cloud security. What does Twilio do? Well, if you look at their SEC statements, they'll say they're a cloud communications platform which enables developers to build, scale, and deploy real-time communications within software applications, providing a customer engagement platform which comprises a suite of flexible software and communication solutions for all businesses oh. to deliver trusted and engaging customer experiences at scale. WTF. Ooh. Yeah. Well, it turns out they, uh, they, they, among other things, they blast out text messages. So when you get an automated text message from a company or from a political campaign or something, it may very well come from Twilio. They, well, they want to say it's, it's a holistic approach at customer connections. Okay, sure. Maybe when it's used well. But it, is, it was interesting. So that, their quarter wasn't what they thought it would be, and I, legitimately so, because the CEO bought, I think, $10 million dollars worth of stock ahead of this, uh, and he's way down in that investment. And so I think it'll surprise them how bad things are, but they're looking forward at AI and how AI will change the way companies understand what their customers are asking them, how they respond and create responses to those, uh, uh, those customers or potential customers, and what it means for companies that have already built tech stacks or bots or whatever, to respond to customers now that they might have AI tools, how might they use Twilio to do that? How might they change uh, other big companies, whether they're using Twilio or something else, their existing tech stack? Interesting comments here from Twilio's co-founder and CEO, Jeff Lawson. Generative AI is the next platform shift in technology. And by the way, it's not tech, in technology, it's, it's actually in society. Um, and if you think about the 
But when these shifts occur, like the PC or you know the arrival of the PC and the PC to the web and the web to mobile, right? You can see the kind of disruption that occurs in market after market when these transformations happen. In fact, it's interesting. There was a Wall Street Journal headline today that says, you know, is this the iPhone moment? Uh, and I think absolutely. I would answer yes. Yes, it is. Now, there's an interesting question, though. Um, you know, if you remember the early days of, you know, say the web, where companies were trying to figure out, oh, what do we, what do we do? Do we have a brochure on the site? Remember when companies used to say, like, we're not allowed to link off of our site because there's a legal problem with that. Everyone was like, what? So people have to figure out how to use these new technologies in the corporate setting. And I think that's what the conversations I'm having with customers now are exactly that, right? Is this ready for an enterprise use case? Or is a bot that I put in front of my customer going to start like talking, saying stuff that I don't want to say, right? Is it going to start having a dialogue with my customers about, you know, God knows what, or are they going to stay on topic and talk about my products and my services and all that kind of stuff. And so I think that's where a lot of the work is going right now. And I think there's really good questions that are getting answered um, every day that work we are doing work others are doing in terms of like how to keep these, uh, these large language models on topic and provide boundaries for them so that they are useful in a corporate context. And that stuff is getting resolved, I think, pretty quickly. And so the conversation, I'll, 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 I'll clue you into a conversation I had with a customer recently, which I think is indicative of what I think is going to happen. It was, I was talking to a customer, a very large financial services company, and they were telling me how they had spent the last seven years uh, building out all of the intents to have a bot for their service use cases that could contain, you know, customer calls, right? Containment is the, you know, didn't have to reach a, a person. And they said, well, if containment was, you know, after seven years of work or whatever, it was about 40%. And so 60% of the calls made it through to human being. And I asked, and, you know, we were talking about large language models. And I said, you know, do you think you're going to keep that investment? Or do you think you're going to start from scratch in the large language model world? And the customer said, no, we'll keep that investment. But, you know, hopefully large language models will help us, you know, move it forward from 40% up, up from there. And through the course of the conversation, we talked a lot about what's possible in the architecture of these new language models and how they can work with segment customer data and things like this. And at the end of the conversation, I asked again, do you think you're going to keep that 40%, uh, you know, the investment you made over the last seven years that got you to 40% containment? And the, 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 the customer said, no, it's going in the garbage can, right? Like every decision we've made for the last seven years about what's possible is now like a relic of the past and is re up for, uh, for relitigation uh, and potentially new approaches, new vendors, uh, new ways of implementing it because the large language model world just upends what is possible. And I think that is why it is a gift in terms of creating new opportunities for uh, companies, you know, like Twilio, who is helping our customers activate their customer data across the customer lifecycle, uh, take, you know, CRM, which has historically been this like kind of sleepy area of like a, just a database, not activate it, make it useful across many different touch points. Uh, large language models are an absolute gift. So a gift, large language models, a gift, an absolute gift. Um, I think we're going to see more of this, Isaac. And I think that this helps us get beyond the buzz of the phrase AI and really kind of look at the actual um, implementation and the spending that will come from the possibilities of AI as they get rolled out. And from the sounds of what we heard from Twilio just here, it's getting rolled out right now. If you were to explain what generative 
AI is, how would you explain it? How would you define it? Um, if I were to, so generative AI, to be brief, it's, it's basically trying over and over and over and over again until you get it right. And it uses a computer to say, ah. here's the answer, it's wrong. That's uh, closer to right. Here's the answer. Okay, uh, how close am I now? Am I closer? Closer? Clo further? Closer? Closer? Further? Further? Closer? The generation. So the, throwing a bunch of stuff at a wall. No, it's taking. No, sticks. no, it's not. It's not throwing a bunch of stuff. It's throwing the same thing at the wall and seeing if you got closer. And so when you apply gotcha. the okay. answer that you got to the the large language model, the giant model of, hey, I think this is what would be the right answer. How close am I? How close am I? How close am I? Closer, further, closer, further. That's what uh, generative AI does. It tries to find. It tries to come up with a solution by using the power of computing to uh, uh, try it over and over again until it gets it right. Excellent. Okay, cool. Corey, what's your next drill down? I want to look at ProFrac Services. ProFrac Services has the best ticker symbol, ACDC. ACDC shares have risen 15% over the past five days, but they've lost 40% in a year. So what's going on with ProFrac or ACDC? So ACDC, as you mentioned, a great a ticker. Uh, I've known about this company for a while, um, but what I didn't realize and was thrilled, you know, I listened to the conference call this morning, uh, and I should mention it's about a billion five a company, so it's a you know a smaller company uh, as far as the market goes, a billion five market cap um, uh, in the oil and gas business. Shocker, fracking, pro frack. They do fracking um, uh, specifically. They they sell sand and they uh, they sell uh, services with trucks and so on, fleets that that help uh, companies do their fracking at their at the wellhead and, and complete uh, wells. Um, yes, the hold music was thunder. By ACDC, ah, it was fantastic. Yeah, um, uh, that was a whole music book before <laughs> and at the end of the call, which I just loved. Um, and as you mentioned, the the business is, uh, uh, you know, uh, the stock is doing poorly. The business is doing actually really well. Uh, so let's back up for a second. What is fracking? So, so uh, drilling is not fracking. Drilling is digging a hole in the ground. Fracking uh, right. is is once you uh, a company has dug that hole which now might go uh, not just up and down, but horizontal and a little bit diagonal. Um, once you've done that, what you're trying to do is you're trying to connect to the reservoirs of oil, the pockets of oil underground. And sometimes when you drill a well and you suck the oil out that, that the well uh, the, uh, uh, connects to, the ground collapses just a little bit, but it, it, it collapses out all those pieces or places where the oil might be. If you could keep those cracks in the ground that exist open longer, you can pull out more oil. That's what fracking is. So you pull out some oil, pull out some rock, and you pump in a propant. And that propant might be ceramic. It might be water, and it might be sand. And sand is kind of the preferred propant. And so this company buys the propant. They've actually bought some mines that have sand. They're selling mines to their, they're selling from their own mines now. They're selling sand to their customers and they're selling the, they're, they're renting out their fleets to pump that sand in uh, once the well has been drilled. Uh, the business is doing well, as I mentioned. Uh, they're, 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 uh, um, a lot of things are going well from revenues up 216% year over year. Adjusted EBITDA, they're doing acquisitions. That's amazing. So if you take out some of their acquisition costs and some other stuff, uh, they're adjusted EBITDA up 520%. They're per fleet EBITDA. So a fleet is a handful of trucks basically and equipment that that uh, uh, does this this uh, fracking, 
that, uh, that's up 190%. So the profitability of their fleets is up 190%. The number of fleets that they've got out there is up 114%. All the numbers are going in the right direction. The stock's going in the wrong direction. Even free cash flow is suddenly happening for this company, which means they're going to start paying down some debt and everything, things that you don't see if you're looking backwards. But if you listen to the conference calls we have, you're looking forward, you can start to hear it. You also start to hear the frustration of CEO Lad Wilkes um, at the very end of the conference call uh, that took place on, on Wednesday, May 10th. He um, he expresses how uh, what they're going to do with their discretionary cash now that they're starting to create some free cash flow, how they're going to pay down some debt, but also uh, things that they're going to do with their board even in the next few days. And because it's a small company, this is not going to hit the tape, but it was pretty amazing to hear their plans that are uh, clearly so bullish, even as the stock doesn't do much. And um, uh, and I'm not giving you stock advice. I don't know if the stock's going to continue to go down because the numbers have been continued to be good for this company. So maybe they will. Maybe they're wrong in their bet that uh, that gas, natural gas prices have, may have a floor to them and that things will get better for gas eventually. But uh, it was interesting to hear the frustration and indeed the operator coming out at the end of the call saying, okay, any closing comments? And well, I'll let you use them to Profax Services CEO, Lad Wilkes. As we look at our... our um uh, discretionary cash going forward, we're going to be paying down, uh, paying down our debt, and uh, we're also going to be going um, presenting to our board for approval a return of capital program. Uh, and and this uh, uh, this proposal will be going to our board in the in the very near future, in the next couple of weeks, uh, where we outline what we'll we'll be doing with our discretionary cash, um, either a dividend. Or a, or a buyback, um, and so we'll get that over to them, and we'll be updating uh, shareholders as soon as possible. And uh, along with that, one thing I would highlight is that whenever we look at our float here, um, our inventory is higher than our float. Our capex budget is higher than our float. Our ABL is higher than our float. Our quarterly EBITDA is higher than our float. I, I honestly don't understand why um, any energy company out there would want to be a public company. And so uh, we'll be looking at what we do with our discretionary cash as a uh, very focused effort to um, uh, to uh, to make sure that that uh, all stakeholders get uh, their proportional share of those discretionary cash flows. I appreciate all the call and I'll turn it back. We have reached the end of our question and answer session. I would like to turn the conference back over to management for closing comments. Those were my closing comments. Thank you to everyone for joining. Thank you. This will conclude today's conference. You may disconnect at this time, and thank you for your participation. So I guess that, that ends the conference call. Um, just amazing, uh, that frustration. Why would any company want to be public? Um, yeah, I guess we all have those questions every once in a while. Um, uh, and nonetheless, that is Profrac, uh, interesting business. Um, also interesting, uh, I should mention that that Yes, they are in the business of, of helping extract oil and gas uh, from the earth. And, uh, and yet they are uh, transforming the fleets of, of that they are acquiring uh, increasingly into electric vehicles and electric fleets. 
or fleets that are powered off of the gas uh, that comes out of the ground while they're drilling, uh, lowering the environmental footprint of drilling for oil and gas and recognizing that the even oil and gas companies have ESG goals and ProFrac can help them pollute less. Well, that's a, that's a happy thing. Yeah, why not? All right, well, coming up next, uh, a company we've had on once before, VG Properties. Uh, it's a, a REIT that is in the uh, casino space. Um, and indeed, we've had some uh, uh, listeners write in asking to hear from these guys again. They've just been doing great. S&P 500 company, uh, well over $30 billion market cap. And it's interesting to see them grow, uh, grow their assets, grow their returns, uh, and pay out a nice dividend. And while the stock has been uh, going straight up into the right, VG Property CEO Edward Toniak joins us right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. All right, welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. We are joined again by Ed Petoniak. He's the CEO of VG Properties. I say again because, Ed, when we talked last, it was at least 18 months ago, um, or maybe you know even more, and, and your business was very different. VG Properties was very different. You are still there in your home office when we talked to you last, but uh, VG Properties, uh, among other things, has gone from being a PowerPoint deck to an S&P 500 uh, uh, REIT faster than any REIT in the history of REITs. Uh, it is it is incredible what you have achieved. Um, so thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Glad to be back. Um, so uh, if when I was asked to describe VG Properties, I would say they own the land upon which Las Vegas is built. But it's a very different company now. Well, how do you describe what VG is? Yeah, so we are the owner of not only the land, actually, we're also the owner of the buildings um, a, across the country. We have right now about fifth. We have fifty buildings in all. Um, although when I use the word building to describe an asset like the Venetian, which would be our biggest asset asset of all, building doesn't really do it justice. It's got multiple towers. It's got America's largest private sector convention, trade show, conference facility. It's got 7,100 hotel rooms in those three towers. It's got massive amounts of retail, restaurants, uh, nightclubs, theaters, and a whole bunch of food and beverage. Um, so what we effectively own is what we will call experiential infrastructure. Now, a lot of that, almost all of that at this point is in the form of gaming real estate, but we have already since, especially since we last talked, we've begun to diversify our investments outside of gaming into what we call pilgrimage golf with a company like Cabot, into pilgrimage wellness with Canyon Ranch, uh, which many people know well, as well as Great Wolf Indoor Water Park Resort. So again, that's what I would say we're fundamentally in the business of, investing in experiential infrastructure that's occupied by operators who have really rich relationships with the end user, which is to say the seekers of the experiences. And, and uh, I thought you made a great point in your last conference call about, um, it wasn't so explicit, but the, the notion that during COVID, um, uh, the experience economy, that phrase we were hearing so much of in 2017, 18, 19, we didn't hear much of after that because people weren't leaving the house. 
but um, uh, but that's back apparently, and we're and you're seeing it in in the results from the the businesses that uh, are in the buildings you own. Yeah, we are absolutely seeing it. We actually began seeing it as early as, believe it or not, um, the summer of 2020, right? If we rewind the clock, and I can't believe it's already three years since the world shut down, Yeah, our assets were generally closed for the months of April and May. We had certain assets that began to reopen it toward the end of May into June. Las Vegas itself began to reopen in July. And what we saw even in, in the back half of 2020 was that when you coop people up for an extended period of time and the moment you give them permission to flee the coop, a lot of people do it and they do it with incredible energy. So we began to see that rebound in this seeking of experiences in late 2020. We saw it through much of 2021, although there were modulations in that over the course of 2021, because if you remember Delta and you remember Omicron, you know, it wasn't full on yet. 2022 definitely represented the period in which everything was fully reopened and people were ready to go. And that manifested itself in Las Vegas being for much of 2022, the busiest place on earth. That's continued into 2023. Uh, we, the last few months have been record months, all time record months. I guess that's redundant, right? All time record. Um, sure. It was a record record. Yeah, right. But record months in Las Vegas. It's continuing into March. March has got two rounds of March Madness. It's It had NASCAR. It's got so much going on. Um, and I don't think you're going to see that really tail off because... you got F1 that, next year. That's going to be insane. Well, no, actually this year, November of this 23. Year, this year, yeah. yeah, November 23, 10 months from now or so, we've got F1. A couple months after that, we've got Super Bowl, right? And the conferences, conventions, trade shows are coming back fully. There's a big conference, I think it's about to start, called CONAG, in which uh, people from all over the world come to celebrate being in agriculture. And guess what? People in agriculture are making a lot of money right now, and they're going to spend a fair amount of money in Las Vegas. So, uh, but so, how, how important is Vegas? How big of a business is Vegas for you? Is it, can you quantify that in terms of percentages of of you know AFFO? Yeah, so know? we yeah we own ten assets in Las Vegas. Um, our flagships would be Caesar's Palace, the Venetian, Caesar's MGM and, yeah. Grand, Mandalay Bay, but as well as that, we've got Luxor, Excalibur, New York, New York, Park MGM. And I'm going to forget one and I'll get mad at myself. If nobody else does. We got 10 of them. And it represents in aggregate about 45% of our annual rent. Uh, the other 55% of our annual rent comes from assets that stretch from Lake Tahoe in the West to, uh, well, I used to say Atlantic City. And now you could say Springfield, Massachusetts in the East. So it is a very big part of our portfolio. But the thing that makes us comfortable with that concentration risk is the fact that the revenue, uh, of our Las Vegas assets is so complex because the assets are both spatially and operationally so complex. For example, when we did the underwriting for the Venetian back in uh, early 2021, um, we, we discovered that gaming constituted only 25% of the revenue of the Venetian, which at that time was almost $2 billion. 
So you've got $1.5 billion coming from all these other sources, which we think greatly de-risks the economic model of our operators, both on the Las Vegas Strip and elsewhere, but especially on the Las Vegas Strip, because again, those breadth and depth of activities. I mean, if you look at Caesars Palace on any given night right now, as an example, um, you've always got the gaming floor going off and the sports book, but you got 4,000 hotel rooms, you got more restaurants you can shake a stick at, you got Adele packing them in every night she's in residence, you got one of the most profitable nightclubs in the world in Omnia, you got a whole bunch of retail, you got the forum shops uh, operated by Simon. So all of that revenue complexity, we think substantially de-risks the assets and the overall concentration that we have in Las Vegas. And now you're under other things like Great Wolf, uh, which and I, I can see how you think that looks like a casino, right? Is it kind of a contained property with different revenue sources and people staying in hotels and spending money and concessions and taking their kids whitewater rafting indoors? Exactly. It's uh, we, in fact, we, we tend to call businesses like Great Wolf uh, casinos without gaming um, because they do operate in exactly the way you're talking about. Um, lots of different revenue lines. Um, and in the particular case of Great Wolf, uh, a secular tailwind right now uh, in the form of millennial family formation. The greatest number of Americans ever were born in 1990, okay? So they're now 32, 33 years old. They did delay family formation somewhat for multiple reasons, including COVID. But <laughs> it was an interesting bit of real uh, research out of Bank of America a couple months ago that indicated that the, <laughs> the American intention to pursue pregnancy is at an all-time high, right? So when you think about what that will mean over the next 10 to 15 years for families having children, raising those children, bringing them into all kinds of experiences, including Great Wolf Indoor Water Park Resorts, there's a secular tailwind here that's going to make what is already a really compelling economic model even more compelling because of the, the secular demand driver behind it. So, in a, in a list, so we got the, we've got the golf courses again. You can kind of see the similarity there, where there's a there's a there's a reasonable size re, uh, uh, real estate footprint. There's a couple sources of revenue, right? Possibly lodging and and obviously fees on the, on the course and food and, and drinks of different sorts. Uh, but it makes me wonder about uh, theme parks and if that's in your in your future plans. Possibly, you talked a little bit of that in your recent conference call. Yeah. So, uh, and just to go back to golf for a moment, the area of golf yeah. we're most focused on is what we call pilgrimage golf. Uh, it's, it's obviously epitomized by the likes of historically Pebble Beach, Pinehurst, Pebble, yeah. in the last 20 years or so, Band in Oregon. St. Andrews, um, sure. Yeah, exactly. Our partner is Cabot, a company out of Toronto that very successfully developed and now operates Cabot Cape Breton. And we're going to help them grow around the world. And that creates those assets tend to create a demand dynamic that leads to incredible forward bookings um, and, the, and the pricing power that goes with that, as well as word of mouth and retention. Uh, and then when it comes to theme parks, they theme parks tick off the four key boxes by which we evaluate investments. Number one, lower than average cyclicality versus consumer discretionary at large. Theme parks, especially regional theme parks, very much remind me of the business I used to be in, which was ski resort management. And in recessionary periods, 
Families are willing to invest in a day trip to a regional theme park because even in recessionary times, families, especially families with small kids, reach the point where everybody's batshit crazy and we got to get out of the house and the theme park is an affordable luxury. So, the, so, so the, to be clear, the regional theme park, not the the the, the Disney World, Disneyland, uh, we're going to take our kids twice before they get to the age. Not not Isaac, our yeah. producer, takes our kids like every other weekend because they're, yeah. they're Disney freaks. But yes. Yeah, yeah, de- definitely there's less sensitivity because, again, these are drive to, not fly to. I will say Disney and Universal um, have tended to show pretty strong staying power even during recessionary periods because – you do get a critical mass of families who are willing to save up for that, even in the harder times. But at any rate, lower than average cyclicality, generally no secular threat because Amazon's not figured out how to put a roller coaster into a box or ship it through a wire to your house and displace the place. Number three, healthy supply demand balance. Uh, nobody's built a meaningful theme park of any scale and I think it's 40, 50 years. Um, and number four, it's, the theme park experience has proven its durability for decades now, right? So it is an interesting uh, category for us based on those four key factors of low cyclicality, no secular threat, healthy supply, demand balance, and durability of the experience. And you add to that the fact these are big, complex assets, very capital intensive. um, And we think there's a way And it doesn't necessarily mean the operator has to sell us all the real estate pin to pin, but it gives the operator the ability to monetize some of that real estate value, take the capital we give them to either invest in new rides and experiences, which tend to be really expensive, um, and or potentially acquire other theme parks or other theme park operators in order to grow, should they have that opportunity. So it is a space we're interested in. We don't have anything anything imminent. But I would also tell you that that same family formation dynamic that's going to benefit Great Wolf over the next 10 to 15 years will benefit theme parks as well. Boy, too bad there aren't some activist investors involved in Six Flags and trying to break it up into Opco <laughs> and Propco. Oh, wait, that is the case. Well, why don't you just get involved in Six Flags? What are you waiting for? You know, I, I, as I've said, we're really interested in the sector. Um, you know, we want to get to know all the operators, find out what their goals are, what their capital needs are, and if we can be of service to any of them, we absolutely will be. Unusually cagey of you. Um, so uh, let me, you, you know, you, you did say something about uh, that business on your conference call that I didn't understand about the lack of a hub and spoke um, setup in that industry. I don't understand what you mean by that. Yeah, no, and I didn't make that actually very clear on the conference call. Um, And what I meant by that is that when you look at the U.S. theme park map, you have two locations that could very justifiably be called hubs, Orlando Orlando and and Anaheim. Anaheim. Right. Right? And you have, on the U.S. theme park map, you have a whole bunch of regional assets, whether owned and operated by Six Flags, Cedar Fair, or SeaWorld, that are very compelling regional assets, but with the possible exception of SeaWorld, which can feed people to its flagship in Orlando, those regional theme park operators do not have, do not have hubs to which they can send business, okay? And when you think of hub and spoke networks in hospitality, You can think about, as an example, 
the gaming companies and how successful companies like Caesars and MGM are at operating these so you regional mean like, games. Like MGM selling, sending people across the street to the other MGM owned casino. Not across the street, but across the country. In other words, what the gaming operators have done very successfully, especially Caesars and MGM, is use their regional assets, whether they be in Atlantic City, Detroit, uh, Biloxi, Mississippi, uh, Yonkers, uh, wherever the regional assets may be, they not only realize profit out of these regional assets, they develop a database of customers that they can now market to. Interesting. And so it's not a physical market. hub and spoke. It's it's a it's a marketing hub and spoke. Well, it's both, Basically. really. Um, I mean, because you you don't end up with a marketing database unless you have the physical locations to which these people are going to come, such that you can capture their identity and 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 make them addressable, right? So if I'm a loyal customer, um, if I'm a Caesar Rewards member in Atlantic City or Philadelphia or anywhere else. Caesars can make an offer to me to come to Las Vegas, right? And the offer can be customized. It can be done greatly reducing the cost of conventional marketing and selling. And uh, as a result, Caesars on average generates about 20% of its Las Vegas room nights through marketing to its database of regional customers. MGM has openly committed to increasing their database productivity into their Las Vegas assets from their regional assets or regional database. Um, and they spoke very plainly about the fact that at only 9% of room nights, there was an 11 point gap between them and Caesars. And largely MGM has to rely on OTAs and other more expensive forms of distribution to fill that gap, that room night productivity gap, right? So, that's an example of a hub and spoke system working very powerfully to, to take regional customers and send them to the hub, but it's also a way of taking the, the intellectual property developed at the hub and distribute it out to the regional assets. Another example of this is, the, again, in my old category of ski, is what Vail has done through the Epic Pass, right? Right, right, if right. If I can become an Epic Pass holder in Minnesota or Ohio or Pennsylvania, Vail can now market to me, whether, whether it be Vail or Breckenridge, Keystone, Park City, uh, or North Star, California, or Whistler, Black Home, where I used to live. They can market much more effectively to their Epic Pass database because they built the Epic Pass database off of the spokes, right? So let's go back to theme park space. You got all these regional assets with these customer bases, but you you don't have these regional assets and the database connected to a hub. So the benefit of connecting the hub to the spokes would not only be the, the ability to leverage these databases at the regional level, it would also be a chance to send the very valuable intellectual property that exists in Orlando and Anaheim out to the regional theme parks, which would be pretty much among the first to tell you their IP, their ride IP is not highly valuable, right? They don't have access to Harry Potter. They don't have access to Marvel superheroes and all the other uh, intellectual property that Disney and Universal do such a good job of, of capitalizing on at their hub assets in Orlando for Disney and Universal and in Anaheim for, actually, 
Universal's in California too. Um, yeah, yeah, and, and 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 you know, not all that far, I guess. I mean, uh, uh, from uh, Anaheim. Well, as soon as we hear about Disney Detroit, we'll give you all the credit. But in the meantime, uh, Ed Petoniak, I'm so grateful for your time today. Such an interesting story. And we've watched this company really grow really fast uh, under your stewardship. So uh, we appreciate your time. My pleasure. All right, Ed Petoniak is the CEO of Vici Properties. Coming up next, the Drill Down Bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot about Vici right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. With ERA, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A.com. And hey, ask your smart speaker to play the Drill Down podcast and you'll hear our latest show. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, bizpod.net. And we're back with the Drill Down Bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot. Isaac Vici doing so well uh, because they know their customers and they know the traffic uh, arriving at their properties and maybe can manage their customers' um, uh, needs better because they have so much insight. Well, one of the ways they have this insight is they have so many companies that are publicly traded companies whose properties are on Vici's uh, land. In fact, and here's your number, 80% of the rent roll is derived from SEC reporting operators. So that gives this company transparency oh, wow. in their tenant performance yeah. and their health. They can see when these companies are reporting and all the numbers these companies are reporting uh, in an audited yeah. fashion to really know what's going on with their customers and, and, uh, and make sure they're going to get paid. It is such a fascinating, fascinating insight into the, the economy that I don't think people consider most of the time. These REITs, especially VC. Yeah, we certainly seen these results. I mean, the results have just been really, really strong. I mean, this is a fifty-one yeah. billion dollar enterprise value company, S and P five hundred uh, component, and everything. Mm-hmm. Right, you've been listening to the Drill Down Podcast. We appreciate your time. Isaac Webster's our executive producer. Ben Wilson to stitch this all together in an extraordinary fashion. The editor that he is. The Drill Down's a production of the Business Podcast Network.